Welcome to First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. My name is Reverend Mari, Marisol Caballero. I'm so glad to be here in front of you again today. Greet the holy within our midst by saying howdy to the folks around you. So go ahead and do that before we get started. What brings us all together? We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. This reading is called God on a Bad Day. It's Daniel O'Connell's imagination. He's the guy that wrote it. Who is God on a bad day? I'll tell you who God is. God's the one washing a piece of fruit over the sink, but the fruit has ants all over it. God's using a spray hose to blast the ants off the fruit and down the drain. And we're the ants. And sometimes God goes to extra trouble to blast, blast, blast an ant who has almost gotten away. Who is God on an ordinary day? God is the pesky reminder that turns into the possibility of insight. It's like cleaning your kitchen before the in-laws come over and you kneel down to clean the front of the oven and you notice some old dried pudding stuck to the kitchen cabinet down near the floor and you get down on your hands and your knees to clean the dried pudding from the cabinet and from that angle you look up and see all the dust on the window. And the crumbs in the corner and the chipped fornica, formica and all the bits of crud attached to things you move through daily. All the stuff you've been living with. And it's all been there this whole time. For weeks, months maybe. You see some of this for the first time. And you wonder what visitors to your house might say and you shudder with disgust or fear or a new resolve to clean things up. But some things are just too cheaply made to ever look good. And in another month, the dirt will just be back again. Thanks for the fresh insight, God. (laughs) Who's God on a pretty good day? You look up from what you're doing and you notice someone. Your spouse, someone you know, perhaps a stranger. And God is the thought... You know, I gotta be nice to somebody. It may as well be you. (laughs) Who's God on a great day? God is the excuse to say thank you. Dear God, thank you for this life. Thank you for my spouse. Thank you for my family and friends. Thank you for my congregation, my calling, my colleagues. Thank you for this day, this amazing, never-to-be-repeated day. Thank you for another day of living. Thank you for all the blessings of my life, known or unknown to me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Amen. So I invite you to light a candle during our musical meditation right after this spoken meditation by Mark Bellatini. Let the difficulties of the week take their Sabbath now. Let their brief and simple rest occur. Let the worries of the week lay their heft gently onto the dark earth below this carpeted floor, which can bear them with greater ease than any of us can by ourselves. Let the tangle of feelings, the push and pull of these last seven days sit still for a minute. Stop writhing in my heart and move no more than a Buddha at rest under a tree. 
Let there be stillness in my heart for a moment, the balance point between breathing in and breathing out, like the pause of a dancer between movements in the music. Let the breathing in this room be free and flowing. Let pulses trance a slower rhythm in the wrist. Let the coming silence be like hands pulling back a curtain, revealing the table set with the feast of life, which is present here and now, and has been the whole time. Present to those who give up living in either the past or the future. May it be so. So this year is coming to an end. And each time that happens, there's this natural human urge to reflect back on the past 12 months and to take stock of our journeys. We think back to all the triumphs and difficulties we've maneuvered around and where all of that twisting and turning and dancing and crawling has taken us. And I've been doing this a lot myself, too, and it has, after all, been a very eventful year for me. And as I reflect back, I'm noticing all that I'm grateful for. And I've been surprised by my gratitude for something just deplorable. So I'm just going to say it. Thank goodness for stress. Yes, it's crazy, but after much introspection, I mean it. Thank goodness for the sweaty palms, the indigestion, the nail-biting, the tight necks, the tossing and turning at nights, and the headaches. Now, don't get me wrong, stress is not fun for me or anyone else, but I've come to think of it like that little red button on the Thanksgiving turkey that pops up when it's had enough of the oven. Stress is a good indicator button. It's a flashing neon light. It'll tell us when we're feeling sketchy about a a situation and it's time to retreat, so it's really good for us um, to use that to help us develop our street smarts. It'll also give us, they say, superhuman strength when your child is trapped underneath the car and, you know, all the release of endorphins and whatnot. But more than this, I appreciate stress, if not for any other reason, than for the fact that when I notice I'm stressed, usually because I notice all of those physical symptoms I mentioned before, I tend to put stress in my body, not unlike a lot of us, and I gain an increased awareness. If I'm paying attention, an awareness of higher-than-usual stress levels will alert me that there's a larger something going on that I should be paying real attention to, like a swollen lymph node will do before an infection. And uh, I become more mindful of my life, my activity level, my obligations, my shortcomings, and my health. When I notice I'm stressed, I'm able to stop and take the pulse, so to speak, of all of this and make better decisions, hopefully, and reframe my thinking, though it's always way easier said than done. It's easier said than done to even remember to do all that. 
So I haven't always had this friendly a relationship with stress, and truth be told, as most people, I suppose, I've, I struggle with it daily. We uh, all have this love-hate relationship with stress that I do as well. Um, well, maybe most people just the hate, but I have a love-hate relationship. And it was fairly recently in my adult life, actually, that I came to discover that I suffer from anxiety. And it isn't enough to be diagnosed as a disorder, thank goodness. And most people don't know me as a particularly nervous person. I'm not sure that I present that way. Um, so I was resistant at first to facing this. And I've made great strides through therapy and through reflection. But I've found that the most valuable lesson that I've learned has been trying to make friends a bit with stress. Anxiety can be managed by reframing our worries and our fears and stresses and by tossing out those that don't serve us or are unnecessary. Now, as I go along, I just want to say that you may notice that I use this, the term stress and worries and fears and anxiety somewhat interchangeably. And this may not be clinically sound, but it's probably not, you know, from a mental health perspective, but it's probably not... Um, responsible of me to try to speak like a psychologist in clinical terms anyhow. So we're going to just use these in the casual, more general context today. Thanks for indulging me that. Um, but another one of the benefits of stress is that it can be a good motivator, urging us to meet deadlines and get great things accomplished. And I'm one of those expert famous procrastinators that swears she does her best work under pressure. I don't always work under pressure, but I'm good when I do. <laughs> Stress can also help us to place our best foot forward, of course, when, uh, when um, we're preparing for a job interview or getting ready for a first date. It can add to our excitement as we wait in line for a roller coaster. Acknowledging these beneficial forms of stress can make it easier to make friends with it to a degree, but in reality, most of us lead such fast-paced lives filled with responsibilities and demands of work and family that our experience of stress is more of the annoying variety. It comes in the same package as that excitement-building motivating variety, the palms sweat, the heartbeat increases, and hands quiver, stomach goes crazy, mouth is bone dry. Sounds familiar, right? But the difference is with this aggravating type of stress comes the anxiety that deep-seated fear induces. Fear is at the bottom of all of our anxieties. It, In fact, we spend a good deal of our life afraid. For example, if our job stresses us out, we might fear we're getting laid off or fired. We may fear ending up a failure or maybe even a success. Many times we become anxious because of the fear of breaking relationship with others. We'll stress out about a communication that we had with a loved one and worry about how it was received, wondering if we've hurt their feelings. And 
We fear not being accepted by others, not being loved. And for many, above all, the most anxiety-inducing fear is the fear of death. Wishing to prolong the inevitable for our loved ones and for ourselves, we worry about safety and health and worry and worry and worry. None of these are unfounded fears. Any anxiety caused by possible events are valid anxieties. I mean, the king did forget what he was going to say, and the queen did catch a cold. After all, we've all either experienced or witnessed the loss of a job, a relationship ending in divorce, a broken friendship, or the disassociation of family members that were once close. We've all certainly felt rejection at one point or another in our lives. It's a common human experience. And we have all experienced death and illness, whether intimately or several persons removed. We understand that tragedy is not only possible, but many of us have met it personally. We know that bad things do happen, so what's preventing them from happening to us and to those we love? Realistic, understandable, valid anxieties. Why then should stress be an indicator to slow down and gain perspective? Well, it's easy to allow our worries to snowball and become just so big they're difficult to manage or impossible to manage. I'm not referring to the anxiety that can be brought on by drug or alcohol abuse or the type that leads to panic attacks, again, um, or causes someone to not be able to function normally in their daily lives. These are different, and we're speaking again today just more to the common understanding of stress. If you, if you are experiencing those, please do seek professional help. No, I'm talking about the common daily stressful lives that we all lead that leave us at the end of the day a bundle of nerves and make it difficult to unwind. How many times have you felt ruled by your stress instead of the other way around? This is why work is so often referred to as the rat race. We can feel as if it's so easily, as if a 24-hour day just isn't long enough with all of our obligations and demands combined with the things we enjoy doing and try to make time for. Worrying becomes that unwritten bullet point on our list of things to do and eventually goes along with each bullet point that's already on our list. Pick up the dry cleaning. Oh no, what about traffic? Go to the grocery store. I'm probably going to forget something. I do this too. But it can happen if we let it, only. But while many of our anxieties are justifiable, many more are unnecessary. They don't serve us. They're superfluous. It's important to remember that possible events aren't always likely events. I've heard wise parents speak of child-rearing in this way, um, <clears throat> This understanding of anxiety saying, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> of course you worry, but you cannot stop your children from experiencing the world, good and bad. 
There are times that you have to just let go and trust them and trust that you've done what you can for them. Winston Churchill once echoed this when he said, When I look back on all these worries, I remember the story of the old man who said on his deathbed that he had a lot of trouble in his life, most of which never happened. I once read a story that was a great illustration of how we may carry more stress than is necessary. In this story, a teacher asks some students the weight of a glass of water. Here we go. And some answered eight ounces, some answered 20, and the teacher replied, the actual weight doesn't matter. What matters how long you try to hold it. If I hold this for a minute, that's easy. If I Hold it for an hour, my arm will start to ache. If I hold it for a day, you'll have to call an ambulance. In each case, it remains the same actual weight. But the longer I hold it, the heavier it becomes. And he continued, that's the way it is with stress, with stress management. If we carry all our anxieties all the time, sooner or later the burden becomes increasingly heavy. We won't be able to carry on. As with the glass of water, we must set down our worries, especially the unnecessary ones. Sometimes temporarily, some, while we recover our strength and time and emotional reserves, and sometimes permanently when we gain an awareness that they just don't serve us. One instance in which I truly recognize the value of this practice in a personal way um, this distinguishing between the useful and the not-so-useful anxieties, it occurred on, along my path toward ministry and provided me with today's sermon title, Surplus Anxieties. In 2010, I traveled from California, where I was living at the time, to the East Coast, the Philadelphia area, to be interviewed by the Regional Subcommittee on Candidacy, Ministerial Candidacy, one of the many hurdles through which aspiring Unitarian Universalist ministers have to jump through. And we imagine that they're laced with fire, these rings we jump through, but they're really not. But it's something when a regional committee is across the country. Anyhow. <laughs> um, so I was terribly nervous, as you can imagine. I had already finished seminary. You're supposed to do this beforehand, but it's a costly process. And I had already finished seminary and accrued a lot of debt. And this was the chance to practice all I had learned in managing my anxiety because I was going before a group, a panel of several strangers who were there to stare me down and ask me personal and professional questions and whose job it was to judge me fit or unfit to continue in this process. And so I was given the option by them before I arrived, several weeks before I arrived. They said, if you'd like, you can bring words to light the chalice by. And I decided I'd better take them up on that offer. So a week before traveling, I sat down and I imagined myself before them and I prayed what I felt. And this is the prayer that I wrote and ultimately read on the day of my interview. May this candle be for me here like a warm hearth fire, 
calming all surplus anxieties and reminding me that in this company I am home. Yes, may this light be the hearth fire of this committee as its members gather round it in their wisdom and experience offering guidance and counsel to each who sit before them today. This flame is our hearth, our common gathering place as Unitarian Universalists. Around it, our movement draws together, returning home to where we are cherished, challenged, and celebrated, and creating a home for those seeking the same. May the warmth of its fire be ever-reaching. Amen. Now we began the interview, and I noticed a man to my right with these big, bushy, furrowed eyebrows. And this intent look on his face. And he just leaned in closer to me each time I answered a question. And for a moment, I was certain that he absolutely hated me. I was convinced this man just despises me. And I don't know why, but I'm sure I said something dumb. And <laughs> but I caught myself and I thought, perhaps this is just his face, you know? <laughs> Perhaps this is the look he has when he's listening really intently. And perhaps he doesn't hate me. It's possible. (laughs) Then came his turn to ask a question. He was last because they went around this way. And it was his turn. And he paused and he furrowed his eyebrows even deeper. And he said, my question is, did you write that chalice lighting yourself? It was just lovely. Those words, surplus anxieties, I've never really heard it put that way before, and I loved it. Man, the irony. (laughs) My fears about being rejected, about the financial impact a delay in ordination would mean, all my anxieties wrapped up in my feelings and my imaginings of those furrowed eyebrows. They were all surplus. And they were not needed. And in fact, they weren't serving me. They were harming me during the interview. And it's what I prayed for. (laughs) What has the wisdom of your years taught you about your, what you give your fears to, what you give your energy to, what's worth your extended anxiety and what's not? What are your surplus anxieties? So I'd like to invite you to take a moment to reflect on what worries you're able to let go of today and what you've been carrying around with you. Maybe you can think of one, maybe several. Maybe it'll be easy to set aside. Maybe it'll be really tough. Try to challenge yourself. And I invite you to hold them in your minds during the piano interlude. And perhaps you'd like to even close your eyes and visualize lifting up something really heavy and burdensome. That heavy object is your surplus anxiety. And then just... Set it down. Imagine yourself setting it down and simply walking away. The old Quaker song says, "'Tis a gift to be simple, tis a gift to be free." So let's now simplify our lives by being free of our surplus anxieties. To take care of ourselves is truly a spiritual exercise. 
In doing so, we honor the sacred nature of our being, that spark of divinity that resides in each of us. When we pay attention to our whole selves, our physical and emotional and spiritual needs, we are in turn caring for and showing reverence to that one little small corner of the interdependent web of existence. For we too are citizens of the universe who matter. When we recognize the impact of caring for ourselves, we become better stewards of the planet and begin to increase the value and we recognize in all living things and in future generations. And when we take the time to care for ourselves, we replenish our reserves and have the capacity to care for others better. This we all know. We all know this. It's old advice, but it's easier said than done. I think especially for women who are taught to to take care of everyone else and then see to yourself, maybe, if. Now, one reason we come to church is to take care of ourselves better by being part of a loving spiritual community. We become one part of the whole knowing that we don't always have to shoulder our worries or joys alone. Others will worry and celebrate with us, and we'll do the same with you. Recognizing and then ridding ourselves of our surplus anxieties is one way to exercise self-care. To do so as a church community shows us that we're not alone in carrying them around. In fact, next Sunday, during the annual Burning Bowl service, All will be invited to bring forward those things that you'd like to just leave behind as we enter 2014. That's next week, so come on over. And we'll do this together. Your surplus anxieties may find their way into that bowl of fire alongside bad habits and grudges and other disposable things. There are many ways to de-stress and relieve anxiety before they become surplus. Paying attention to our interpersonal communication, setting achievable goals, forgiving your shortcomings, going to therapy or chatting with your partner, a close friend, or your minister, or another confidant, exercising flexibility in your life are all ways to alleviate anxiety and practice self-care. Other means of self-care that we're more familiar with, maybe, than caring for ourselves and our anxieties is, you know, meditation, exercise, healthy eating habits, using your imagination, creativity, engaging in hobbies. But we don't often think about self-care as attending to our anxieties. Again, practicing self-care is not a matter of self-indulgence. It's a religious act. It's a spiritual practice. It nurtures our soul. I now invite you to consider the ways that you will engage in the spiritual practice of self-care. Perhaps today or perhaps this week, perhaps in this new year. No matter, think of it as a promise to yourself. Set the intention. Visualize yourself engaging in these intentions. Now that we've freed ourselves 
a minute ago from our surplus anxieties that we carried in with us this morning and we're setting together these intentions for self-care, perhaps we can leave here with a lighter load filled with joyous gratitude, like God on a good day saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. Let love, not fear or stress or worry or anxiety be your legacy. Carry these intentions out with you today and into this new year. Go in peace. This is a presentation of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, visit our website at www.austinuu.org.